What's up, crew? Welcome to Filming in Progress, the show that takes you backstage into the world of local businesses and the people who make them shine. Today, we're chatting with Chad Hayden. As the CEO of Galatea Technologies, Chad's diverse background offers a unique perspective on leveraging technology for efficient solutions. We discuss the secrets behind Galatea's success, including strategic fusion of tech and industry expertise, and the guiding values that drive their commitment to excellence. All right, man, thanks so much for for joining us today. Excited to be here. Where are we? We're at Galatea Technologies head office in downtown Calgary. Right on. So give me a little bit of backstory. Uh, How'd you get to where you are today? Well, it's a long journey. Let's rewind the clock. 17 years old, I graduated high school, pretty young kid. What did I do as a natural Albertan? I went and worked on the oil rigs. I had a couple uncles in the space. One of them got me a job. 17 years old, after graduating high school, driving out there in my truck. You know, it was this huge culture shock for me, this, this crazy reality. I went out there as a 17-year-old kid, and in a few weeks came back a man. You know, you're working a tough job out in the elements. I ended up working in Northeast BC for a, for a little while. Um, so far north that the sun doesn't even rise. It just gets bright on the horizon. It was wild. So I think the lesson that it taught me, the most important lesson was this isn't what I want to do the rest of my life. So after working rigs, I got into the Southern Alberta Institute of Technology. I took petroleum engineering technology, and I loved it. It was a fantastic program. I'm a fixer in life. I solve problems for people. So coming out of school, I went back to the field and started solving, sort of being that bridge between engineering and technology, bringing in computer programs, fixing Excel spreadsheets. And the more things that I fixed for the company, the more exposure they gave me to their problems. It eventually led to one day having a conversation where they said, hey, do you want to go down to Colorado and solve a problem for our U.S. division? I went down there uh, for a couple-week trip and ended up staying for two years. Lived in Colorado, worked all across uh, the northern U.S. And then the company, a couple years later, bought a company out of Texas. And they said, Chad, how do you feel about Houston? I said, it sounds like a great adventure. So... I went to Houston and spent four more years fixing problems. Eventually had too much fun and had to move back to Canada. Uh, Landed in Canada working for an environmental service company where I saw this huge disconnect between really this, this market of commodities and energy businesses that were sending their products and wastes on all of these trucks all throughout all of these operating regions that I had worked in And the system just didn't make sense to me. Being a fixer, I'm always looking for the perfect optimization outcome. And this whole market was just absolutely crazy, wild inefficiencies. So um, worked at this environmental service company. And then when I thought about the problem, one side of the problem was you have these commodity businesses, oil companies, mining companies that generate waste and commodities. Then you've got these receivers, which I worked at, these environmental services businesses. The last part was a trucking company. They're the ones that actually come out to the sites, pick up these products and waste, and move it to these receiving or endpoints. 
I'd never worked at a trucking company. In fact, my only interaction with truckers was smoking cigarettes, you know, off lease. So I went and worked for a trucking company for two years. I think in life, any problem that you solve, it needs to be your problem to solve. That gave me the opportunity to ride around with drivers, sit in the dispatch room, uh, help see how they make decisions, manage this crazy cash flow business. So after that, I got the confidence to really say, hey, there's this huge opportunity in this space. Let's go out and solve it. That brought me to Galatea in about 2019. Unreal. And being, being a problem solver, you know, as you described your whole life, that's, uh, it, it's, it takes a lot. It's, it's exciting to kind of look at everything and analyze it and determine, you know, what's wrong with this and how can I optimize and fix it? Would you say you began your story there in 2017? Would you say that you, that began even be, before that? Uh, my whole life I've been curious. I've been the kid that asks a million questions, takes things apart, try to figure out how it works. I remember my parents got me a computer when I was young. And I was always looking in the code to see how you could change things and tweak things and play with different things. I think curiosity is something that is inherent for fixers. We're just always, hey, let's get down to the essence or the root or the you know, simple engineering terms of this and, and what's actually happening. Everything I look at in life, I, I have this curious bend to it. I really want to understand how things work. I read a lot. I listen to a lot of content. I don't really watch TV or movies. I'm always trying to figure out how the next thing works. Right. When you're always looking to fix these kind of things, is it hard to start or to kind of focus on one thing? You know, are you being a chronic fixer? Everything's kind of an, a challenge or an opportunity, if you will. Yeah, I've had to learn that lesson. You know, you, when you go through this, like you said, that mindset of being a fixer, that's a world of problems. It's really getting the conviction behind solving a problem. And I think it's easy to fall in love with a problem and do it for a few months. It's harder to do that for a year. It's insanely hard to do it for 10 years. And I've had to work really hard to find something that I've got the conviction and the passion for to really stay curious. The problem that we solve today really starts with an operational problem in the field. But when it really comes down to the essence of it, it's an actual behavior problem that we're trying to solve. When we go into these commodity businesses and say, hey, we're here to optimize your workflow, when we ask the question, whose performance do we need to increase? It's actually the performance of their service company, of that same transporter I smoked cigarettes with off lease when I was in the field. That's what really captures my curiosity. How do we provide a performance management system for a transporter that really gets no reinforcement, that gets no measurement of their performance? I like problems like that where you can peel back the layers to really understand the complexity. Thankfully, commodity businesses, the optimization opportunity is absolutely massive. The impact not only fiscally to the operating expenses of these companies, but also environmental performance, regulatory, social performance uh, is, is amazing. So when you first sought out to, to solve the problem that Galatea solves, was it, did you know that it was going to kind of keep unraveling to become more complex and you'd keep having, more problems would keep coming up? Yeah, I think it's like peeling back an onion when you first look at it holistically. I think uh, any problem worth solving, you need to have certain aspects of the problem that are going to give you value. What is the job to be done and would somebody pay for it? And as we went through this, we realized that on this macro workflow, 
there's a lot of jobs to be done and there's a lot of opportunities to provide value. And then as you start to solve the problems, you'll solve a little bit and you'll get close enough to the client where you can start asking these curiosity questions and you can start understanding who else really touches this workflow and get deeper into the end-to-end solution. With this mindset of curiosity and the mindset of jobs to be done, you really get this understanding of value. When you understand value, then you look at what are the inputs it takes to deliver that value and is there a real business here? I've started a handful of businesses and one of the things that you learn is there's a, there's a world of businesses to be solved, but you have to find a problem that's going to create this sustainable business where people will pay you enough money to make it make sense for you to put in the effort and the commitment to actually solve it. There needs to be a return. Yeah, yeah. We were talking off camera about how you know it, most most entrepreneurs have gone through several businesses to find the right one, if you will. Um, how do you know, or have you experienced? You know, this is this is the one. Yeah, I think it's you know as a CEO, as an entrepreneur, I come from a family of entrepreneurs, so I've grown up watching this from my parents to grandparents to uncles. Everybody has started businesses and grown these organizations. I think what I've learned most is it's an evolving process. It's not like you become a business owner or an entrepreneur and your job's done. You need to evolve and your business needs to evolve. I'm always, what I spend the most time at Galatea thinking about is what's next? How do we go to that next level? And there's a whole bunch of problems all the time at any business that you run culture problems, people problems, scaling problems, technology problems. It's all thinking about how do you understand those problems? How do you see around the corners? How do you know what's coming next? How do you build resiliency in all of your systems and processes? Really understanding what's going to take your business to the next level. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you mentioned in there that you come from a family of entrepreneurs, which I find really interesting. I don't think that's that's overly common, you know. Uh, how do you think that kind of shaped you into your your current hunger and your your desire to solve problems and and be the leader that you are? Well, I think entrepreneurship comes with a lot of risk, and it's hard for people to take risk. What helps? people and me take risk is knowing that failure is okay. Somebody that I like and that I think of as a, a mentor, when you go into their office, he actually has his two bankruptcy certificates behind his desk. A lot of people will have their engineering degrees and MBA, all that sort of stuff. He has his two bankruptcy certificates and there's a great story that goes with it. Um, it's, it's the acceptance of being allowed to fail that I think gave me the courage uh, to be an entrepreneur. And then having that family, the support system, my wife around me that comes from a family of entrepreneurs, um, it's, it's take, having the ability to accept that risk, take that risk, place an outsized bet on yourself and really putting success and the opportunity for success uh, sort of into your own hands. It's, it's pretty incredible what, what people take on and what people are willing to take on and their risk tolerance, which is what you're discussing, right? Um, has, it, throughout your businesses, have you, have you felt like you've taken an increased risk with each one or has it kind of always been similar? I think it's all about information asymmetry. What might be perceived to be a lot of risk to you is that I'm actually spending my whole life de-risking things. Being a curious person, 
when you look at these crazy audacious goals, when you break it down to first principles and really understanding the core problem, you get a good understanding of risk and the outside perception of what is crazy, once you really get into it, it's not that crazy, it's not that insane. What we're doing here, even at Galatea, we've built a business that, did, that is doing something that nobody's ever done before. We're inventing in an industry that hates new invention. Nobody in commodity businesses wants to be the first person to try anything. So you just really need to understand that and build a business around that and build a strategy around that, that you can overcome that risk. But I think there's very few things in the world that are insane if you're willing to spend the time and be curious and ask the questions and really get to the core of, of what you need to do to overcome this obstacle. The foundation of Galatea, was that always kind of in the back of your mind? Was it something that was developing throughout, you know, the, the previous jobs that you've worked at and that sort of thing? Or was it like a light bulb moment one day where you're like, oh, this is, this is it? I think it's a thesis, right? When you think about it, there's a bunch of threads that will come out over the course of, an, of a great adventure and understanding something. And as you start to pull on those threads, you really understand and unwind if there's an opportunity. How it evolved for me was... I worked at this energy services, environmental services company, and we accepted waste and commodities from a bunch of different uh, producers. And I was a salesperson in charge of one of their assets. And so what I thought as a salesperson, the value that we provided um, was really based around cost and availability and service quality. So I using those assumptions, went out and tried to influence the decisions of our customers to send me more products. What I realized was those weren't the factors at all. In fact, I would take pricing and a model to people in head office and say, here, I'm going to save you money. This is how it's going to help your business. I'd come back to the office waiting to collect a commission check and nothing would show up. I'd go back a month later and say, hey, what happened? I got a really good story here. I've got a huge opportunity for you. What did I miss? And they said, well, Chad, I gave that to the person in the field. Cool. Hop in my truck, head out to the field. I get to site. There's trucks, chaos, things happening everywhere. I bring my spreadsheet in and I say, hey, listen, I'm going to save you money. And the guy on the backside of the desk says, Chad, you got to get out of here. This is absolute chaos. There's trucks going everywhere. Things are happening. I don't have time to look at your spreadsheet, nor do I even care. And I went, whoa, this is crazy. I said, what do you do? How do you make decisions? They said, well, I let the truck driver make the decisions. In fact, a shack over, there's a truck push, somebody who manages all of the logistics on site. So I go talk to them. I bring my spreadsheet. And he's, the guy says, Chad, I don't even know what anything costs, nor do I care. My whole goal here is to make sure these trucks keep moving and we can go to all these facilities. The guy says, in fact... I let the truck drivers decide where they go. I go. Wow, this is crazy. So I leave the shack and I go find a truck driver that's loading waste and commodities to go to one of these facilities. And I said, hey man, where are you taking this? And he goes, well, to your competitor. And I said, why? And he goes, because they got a hot dog machine. And I work 16 hour days and I'm hungry. I like going there because they let me sit inside after I unload and have a hot dog. And I went, whoa, this is absolutely crazy. This is a billion-dollar market, and the decisions are being made based on hot dogs. 
this company that I worked for thought it was you know, a service business. In fact, it was a commodity business and the decisions weren't being made by who we thought they were being made. And I went, wow, this is absolutely crazy. What is the consequence of that? What is the consequence of those decisions being made without all the information, without transparency? And so that gives you a thread to tug on. And as I went through that, then joining the trucking company and see how they interpret it and manage their workflow really made me de-risk this whole opportunity. And, and eventually I would go to my friends who would become later become clients and just say, hey, if I solve this problem, would you pay for it? And how much money would you pay? And once you do that a few times, you understand, hey, is there enough money in solving this problem that people will actually pay for this, that you create this durable, viable business? And once you go through that process, you learn more and more about the opportunity. You learn more and more about the ancillary value all on the outside, the peripheral value all on the outside. And once you do that, you get the conviction to, to start a business. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Uh... It's this funny dichotomy that I see often in business where, you know, your, your problem solving is, is um, streamlined process and that sort of thing, right? It, it, do you, do you, does that translate into your own business? Are you kind of super, super, you know, uh, what's the word for it? Streamlined and, and efficient and, and about saving money and giving hot dogs or... Yeah, that's a great thing. I think as an entrepreneur and an, a fixer and inventor, I call myself a pattern seeker. So I wander out into the world, ask a crazy amount of questions, a lot of time with no rhyme or reason or strategy. And you start to pick up on these patterns. You start to notice these things. You start to hear these things over and over and over again. And you say, okay, there's something here. I need to double click on this. I need to deep dive in that. And even in the business that we're in, I've created mechanisms in which I can start to get patterns or start to sense things. For example, on culture. I think it's very important that businesses have a work from wherever, whenever policy. You're in the office right now, but I don't make anybody come to the office. But as a result, what I've realized is if people stop showing up to the office, there's a reason. And typically it's a culture reason. I think as, as, a, as a business builder and entrepreneur, it's the obligation of, the f of that management team to make people feel like they're missing out when they're not here. We want to pull people to the office, make them want to show up. And that's a huge part of culture, but that's a pattern that you start to see. And if, if people are consistently not showing up to the office without good reason, you know, there's a, there's a culture problem here and we need to, have an honest conversation about that and see if we can fix it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, having the opportunity to walk through your office, it's, it's clear that that's a, that's a big focus. Um, why, be, you know, beyond solving the problem is obviously important, but why is it so important to have people that are like excited to show up every day? You spend more, people, more time with the people you work with than anyone else in your entire life. If it's not fun, quit, leave, go figure something out. Life's way too short to spend time at a place you don't like being. I think that's the hardest thing to get right though. You need to protect that. When you come into our office, it's, there's a story being told here and that story is who we are, how we act, how we act when we're here and how we act when we go walk down the street. And that comes back to you know, our mission, our core values, what our strategy, our tactics, all of those sorts of things. And it's 
it's our job as leaders of the company to tell that story, not just face to face, but it, it needs to be how we act, how we live and everything in the essence of, of what we do. If that's sacred and you hire and fire based on that philosophy, you're only going to end up with amazing people. In fact, the people that you work with, you're going to want to be here. It's almost like management by peer pressure where you, you don't want to fail anybody. You want to make sure that you're delivering um, the same quality, the same um, high regard as everyone else in the organization. And it's super powerful, insanely hard to scale. And that's one of the things I'm trying to figure out right now. I was reading through your culture book there off camera. Uh, can, you, can you explain what that is and where that stemmed from? So there's this crazy software company called Valve. And Valve wrote this culture handbook years ago and it was super weird. But it in, when you read that culture handbook, it made me this, I had this, you know, a visceral feeling where I'm like, I have to work here. These are my people, I get this. So one of the things that I really wanted to do was have a document or something that I can use to attract people to Galatea but also importantly, repel people from Galatea. So we wrote this culture guidebook as a way to tell our story about who we are. Now, our guidebook evolves. We keep a Slack channel and all of the cool isms and sayings and quotes and strategy and tactics, who we are lives in that Slack channel. And then once a year, we rewrite the guidebook and that guidebook starts to take on the flavor of everybody at Galatea, and it's this sort of evolving document. Now, it's, it's awesome because when you're going out to hire somebody, you can give them the guidebook and they'll come back to you and say, I need to work here. Or they'll come back and say, this is just a little bit too off the wall for me. It works the same with board members, with investors, advisors, as it does with potential uh, new hires too. It's been super uh, pivotal to sort of us cementing our culture, especially around who we are and how we act. And I encourage every business to really uh, look up the Valve Handbook, our guidebooks on our website, check it out, uh, riff off it, because I think it's a, a super powerful document that looking back on the companies that I worked for, I think if I read their culture handbook before I went there, I probably wouldn't work there. Mm, interesting, yeah. Has that always been important to you, you know, like, or did it stem from maybe a problem that existed in the early days? Yeah, I've worked at some crazy organizations. My first company that I worked for was awesome. It was such a cool culture. I loved being there. I learned so much from everybody. I had a blast. And then when I went to these other organizations, I realized that I, I really missed that culture too. It's nice to know what you want, and then it's really nice to get a taste of what you don't want. And, you know, when you have a place that you go to work every day and there's something that makes you not want to be there, I think is an absolutely terrible thing, and I wouldn't wish that upon anybody. And I know we all have that experience, whether it's the office vibe, a person, sort of your job, where you're at. Having to go somewhere where you don't want to be is terrible. Making sure that that everybody understands that. At Galateo, we talk about dream jobs. Like We want to make this your dream job, and that's hard to do. It takes a lot of courage to have open and honest conversations about what that looks like, and then really putting a plan in action on how to achieve it. 
um, that guidebook is sort of that foundational document as to who we are, how we act, what we do, what does a dream job look like. Then it prevents us from hiring somebody or doing something that's going to make the people here not want to be here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 a common idea too to have this. Um, you know, when you have a really strong internal culture, then you attract the right clients, and like you said, investors and that sort of thing as well. Um, have you experienced that? You know, from in the work that you do, where you have less issues with with clients because your culture is so strong internally. Well, that's that's a whole other thing that we're trying to grapple with when we're dealing with antiquated commodity businesses. Their mechanism to solve the transporter problem is negative reinforcement. We don't like that. In fact, when I used to work at a trucking company, never once did it happen where we showed up on lease and somebody would say, hey, I'm so happy you're here. The job that you're doing is going to keep our production online. Never happened. In fact, we always got negative reinforcement. So what we try to do at Galatea is teach our clients that, hey, there's a better way to do this. And in fact, the output that you're going to get by using positive reinforcement is 10x on negative reinforcement. It might be really easy to use negative reinforcement, but the more you do that, you're only going to get the outcome. That person is only going to do the minimum to not get that negative reinforcement anymore. You start incorporating positive reinforcement in your feedback mechanisms, and you'll get this exponential increase in performance. That gives our clients an unfair advantage. But it's this whole learning coaching process that we spend a lot of time with our clients, walking them through this realization or this learning that we've gone through as a company. Do you find that you're met with, uh, with resistance due to you know, um, the culture of the industry being that way for you know, so many years? Yeah, I think there's a lot of work to do. Anytime you change a process or invent something new, you're creating more work and you always need to understand and and weigh that, hey, is the value going to be worth the work? And we spend a lot of time talking with our clients and showing them this anticipated value, but you need to do this front-end work. Our solution really consists of three fundamental steps. Step one, we need to digitalize the workflow. Take these paper documents and make them in a digital form. And we obsess about the quality of data and what's going in there. And that creates this really beautiful, clean data set that then we use to optimize that workflow. And that's where most companies stop. Here's a report that engineers go out and look at. They maybe tweak a couple things and see the results on these reports. But the end game is actually automation. How do we create a feedback system and mechanisms and loops that are automated so we can install our solution and the end result just happens through this process. So that's something that we've really tried to figure out because the more effort you make your clients do, you decrease the likelihood of success. You really need to figure out how do you automate a lot of this process to to start with that front-end workflow, digitalize, use that data to optimize, and then eventually get towards automation. Yeah, awesome. Do you find, uh, you know, you mentioned that you're the the, the first ones doing this. Do you find that a lot of the work that you have to do is, is upfront education on you know, how this will benefit your business? Well, don't get me wrong. We're still trying to figure it out as we go to. We have so many learnings and realization. 
as we wander through this business and uncover more and more problems that you know our product is shape-shifting all the time and we're evolving through this process a lot of it is taking concepts maybe it's social engineering or behavioral performance thinking about technology and somebody using an app in the field and how do we weave that behavioral performance concept into the app to drive better outcomes and better outputs it really comes back a lot to what gets measured gets managed and we talk about that a lot here at Galatea a lot of jobs a lot of especially out in the field there's really no measurement if there's no measurement you can't really manage it you can't give somebody an attaboy or a hey good job you can't provide that positive reinforcement so a lot of our job is educating the clients on hey this is a journey we're going to go through this together and this is going to take a couple years to get to the end but here's this anticipated outcome stick with us and and these light bulbs will go off not only for us but our clients and then also that end user that service company out in the field they we go through these series of aha moments and it's it's cool now that we've done it a handful of times we can see those light bulbs going off and we know that we're we're resonating and we're hitting that right part of the journey right awesome is your solution always very customized for each each client of yours it's a hard part about a saas business you want to move away from that customization i know a lot of other ceos that one of the things they struggle with is when you bring in a solution to a company they want to customize it and change it and tweak it that's hard to really get a good growth metric and create profitability one of the things that we work really hard at on at galatea is saying no the more customization you do for your clients the more your solution evolves into this thing with a whole bunch of buttons and it loses that core essence we work really hard at galatea to understand what are the roots of these problems and how do we say no to all of the other opportunities that we have that don't contribute to this sort of holistic product goal um one of our next sort of moves is how do we make it so that when we onboard a new client there is no customization and that in the industry we call that product market fit so how do we get to that product market fit where things become repeatable if they become repeatable then they become scalable yeah is it hard to say no i know for us you know uh being a young company as well it's uh you know you're you're excited to get those clients you're excited to get working in the field and that sort of thing and and you know maybe a good opportunity comes knocking at your door but it's far too custom and it doesn't make sense for you um it, it does does saying no come come easily no i'm a fixer i want to say yes every single time and i want to fix all the problems all the time that's probably one of the hardest things that i've had to learn and i i've established a group of advisors and board members and mentors around me that really helped me understand what are the things that I should be saying yes in fact what are the things I should be doubling down on and what are the things I should be saying no to and the more further I get in my understanding and knowledge the more I realize the more you say no to the more you refine your craft and the more you get absolutely incredibly good at one single thing uh saying no is one of the biggest superpowers in business and when you look at some of these crazy aspirational leaders um they say no a million times more than they say yes absolutely um mentors you've mentioned that a couple of times and i love the i love the story of the bankruptcy on the wall i think that's that's awesome um 
what what role do they play in in kind of your entrepreneurial journey? Yeah, there's so many opportunities to learn hard lessons from people who have learned those before you. And I think if you can create a relationship with somebody where you both give and take and you both have beneficial outcomes, you can learn a lot of incredible things. Now, mentorship is something that I think also needs to be carefully crafted. And you need to make sure that the mentors that you're bringing around you are there at the right time, offer the right advice, are comfortable if you listen to their advice but don't act on it and you go another way. Then I think setting that foundational or having that foundational conversation to say, hey, here's what's about to happen. I need to make sure that, that you're comfortable you know, if you give me this advice or we have this conversation and I go a, a separate way, you're going to support me or you're going to be there for me. Establishing that core group around you. And then I also think there's this concept of sort of apprenticeship that's got lost in the ether sort of as we've evolved as a species. We've, we've become more connected. There's an opportunity to have more conversations where a long time ago, if you wanted to learn a craft, you would apprentice under a master craftsman that's been doing this their whole career. Uh, one of the things that I've, I've tried to do is figure out, hey, who is somebody that is an absolute master craftsman of what I do? And how can I create a deeper relationship with that person to almost apprentice under them? And when you have this apprenticeship mentality, there's a lot more vulnerability and there's a lot more opportunity to give feedback. And, and you know, the more successful you get, the more unlikely it is somebody's going to give you critical feedback, right? So always having that, that master craftsman, that no matter who you are and how amazing you are, you have somebody there that's really offering a dose of reality, I think is, is a super fascinating concept that I sort of explore with. Yeah, I love that. Do you, do you think it's important that uh, your mentor um, has been through, is in a similar field or, uh, or is it okay that they, you know, maybe they're com completely different industry? Yeah, I used to think that honestly, I used to go out and try to find mentors that looked like me and thought like me and talked like me and like, hey, this is just a grown up version of me. But that's the most terrible way to do that. In fact, I now look for mentors who don't think like me, that don't look like me, that don't talk like me, that don't come from my background because then you can borrow the wisdom of the diversity of their thought, understanding, experience, all of this sort of stuff that, that rounds out this sort of holistic approach. I like meet, board meetings. I like advisory meetings where people challenge me and say, hey, here's how I've made a mistake, or hey, here's a brick wall that I think is coming down the path. To find that diversity of thought and opinion is, is insanely valuable. I've almost made that mistake so many times where I try to find people that look and think exactly like me or my team when I really need to be adding diversity into the mix to make better decisions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you find in your experience too that a good mentor kind of goes beyond the business relationship and business advice and kind of like, you know, trickles into the rest of your life? You know, it's, as entrepreneurs, it's, 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 uh, everybody defines balance differently, obviously, but, um, but you know, 
having a good foundation at home and in your personal life and that sort of thing just makes you help helps you show up better at work. Is that is that a relationship that you explore with with your mentors? Yeah, you're betting on people, right? The best mentors, the ones I know when I have a fit is when they call me on the phone and before they talk about business, they say, "How are you? How's your wife? How are your kids? How's everything going? Where are you at? Where are you at right now? How are you feeling? What's keeping you up at night?" You find that somebody who's genuinely interested in investing in you outside of the business, that's the ticket. That's where relationships are built. That's where the reciprocity, that's where the reciprocity uh, creates these, these amazing relationships that are built on you know, investing in people. What are some of the hardest things that you faced in business? It's all hard. I don't know. It's... It's not easy. I think if if you want to make a ton of money and live a happy life, you shouldn't be an investor. You should go be in finance or one of these other careers over there. Um, I I think building a business, you need to be uncomfortable with with not knowing how things are going to turn out. You need to really have a good mechanism or process for understanding risk. You need to be an incredible storyteller. You need to be a craftsman where you're really focused on deep diving into a problem for a long, insanely long period of time. Um, as an entrepreneur, you earn the right to have more problems and new problems. The problems that I have are going to be very much different than the problems of a CEO that runs a billion dollar organization. But I've earned the right every stage of our growth. I earn the right to have more problems. Figuring out what are my next problems so I can get ahead of them helps and a good mentorship team or board or advisory group can help you uncover that but there's new problems evolving in business all the time and I've earned at Galatea we've earned the right to, to have new problems. And as, as somebody who's always looking to solve that next problem and as more evolve um, how do you prioritize you know, what, what deserves your attention and what the ones that you need to solve versus some things that you can delegate or whatever the case may be? That's such a hard problem and I have to work on it all the time. Truthfully, the, the biggest lesson is when I get into a situation where I just can't do everything. It's just not humanly possible that you can actually do it and at that point you, you have to naturally go through this prioritization mechanism where I just can't do it. So the most important things where you're getting notification or a pulse that, hey, this needs to happen, will get done. And you go through this sorting mechanism. Um, I believe in this concept of sort of understanding what you're good at and what you like to do and what gives you energy at work, doubling down and focusing on those. And then figuring out what your team loves to do, what they're really good at, and then being able to delegate to the people that love to do what you don't like to do and vice versa. If you can figure out what gives people power and what they like to do, what gets them here, what gets them excited, give them that work and you take on the work that they don't like to do. You can build out this team and this business where it's super rewarding to be here. I love strategy, I love product, I like thinking about what's next. I hate project management. I hate it so much. Um, I hired a COO and she's one of the most incredible people, but she loves project management and loves lists and getting through everything and successful implementations. And 
it, we work so well together because she stays out of sort of strategy and product that I love to do and I stay out of that product management side of it. Um, it's just such a great relationship to be in at work and, and it's, it's hard to do that. But if you can really understand that with your team, it, cre it creates just natural delegation. Yeah, I love that concept. I think the the we, we call it a genius activity kind of. I'm sure it's similar. You know, everybody calls it something different. Um, do you have a, a formal process that you that you go through to understand that from each one of your employees, or is it kind of a feel out process, or what does that look like? Working genius, Pat Lencioni. That's the process we use now. I think as a CEO and a management team, you're constantly creating an operating model for your business. And as you're in the right to have more problems, you can put together strategies and workflows and more formal process to really solve these sorts of problems. We borrow a bunch of things from Pat Lencioni and Jim Collins and all of these other really cool business leaders to address those problems and they form this operating model. And this is sort of how we live and solve problems. But that operating model is dynamic and we change it almost on a quarterly basis with our business coach. Um, I think there's a lot of incredible business books out there and podcasts and ways to learn from other entrepreneurs. Um, the frameworks are, are fantastic. Working genius is, is great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you mentioned there that you know you have to be willing to, or you are uh, changing things on a, on a quarterly basis, which is so funny because you know it's it's so important to be agile on that sort of thing in this day and age. And you know previously it would take companies years to adopt an idea or kind of get it across. But how important is it to you um, to your success to be agile and be able to make quick decisions? Yeah, I think that's pivotal to a company that is doing something brand new in a space. You need to be able to make decisions quickly. Jeff Bezos talks about this concept of one-way doors and two-way doors. Most of the decisions we make as a business, we can turn around and get back out of that door. No harm, no foul. The big one-way doors that you go through and you can't come back, those are decisions that you really need to take counsel sit down with the board and say, hey, listen, this is what we're up against. Here's the risk. Here's what we're about to do. What do you guys think? And then formulate a decision. But quick decision making, having the understanding that it's okay to fail, it's okay to turn around and walk right back through that door once we've walked through it, um, giving the, empowering the team to make those decisions too and move fast is hypercritical to what we do, especially you know, early stage businesses that are inventing something that's never been done before. Mm -hmm. uh, circling back on the culture idea, I'm curious, have you ever had an experience where an employee maybe didn't work out uh, for, regardless of, you know, they read the manual or the, the handbook and that sort of thing? Um, and then how did that affect the business? Yeah, I think, you know, this is a crazy concept, but a lot of people talk about work in the office as a family. And I think of it more as a professional sports team. You know, we're here to do something that's never been done before. We're here to win. We're here to succeed. And with a professional sports team, it's okay to have a bad game. We're not going to trade you. But at the end of the day, everybody needs to understand that their job's always at risk. And that's something that needs to be instilled in culture. And it creates accountability, this culture of discipline, trying to lead with you know, almost pure pressure. Everybody wants to make sure that they're not the weakest link. Um, 
we've we've gone through a lot of turnover at Galatea, and I think that's okay, and that's natural. As a business scales, I think everybody in the business needs to scale 10 times faster than your business scales. And for high growth teams, that's super hard and but incredibly important to make sure that you're going through that understanding. Um, it's something you can do by you know investing in culture, but also training your people, also letting them know what's next, making sure you're hiring people who are just forever learners and trying to figure out Hey, how do we solve these problems? Awesome. Yeah, how do you how do you instill those personal values? I know we were talking off camera about um, you know hiking is a big thing for you, being outdoors, that sort of thing, and and your you know your logo is the mountain, and maybe explain that first. So we named our company after Mount Galatea, which is the tallest mountain in the Kananaskis Range up here outside of Calgary. Um, when I was trying to get the courage to start Galatea, we would go hiking a lot with my young family. And when you're in the mountains and your cell phone doesn't work and you're disconnected, um, you know, and you're in the back country with a couple small kids and you've got bear spray on your belt, there's a lot of consequence. And it's just a, it's a cool way to create focus. And I think that was a really good symbol for developing a business. Mountain climbing too, our guidebook references mountain climbing a lot because this is a journey. We're trying to get to a peak and a summit. And if you've climbed any mountains or done any mountaineering, there's a bunch of work that goes into that and system and process. And I think that sort of echoes into the brand as well. And then fundamentally, we work for commodity businesses. And one of the things that we help them do is protect the environment. I've worked across all of North America, all around the world, in fact, and we're lucky where we live in Western Canada, where we live in abundance, abundance of energy, food, water. But I've worked in places where it's a desert and there is no water. In fact, the water that ends up comes from the mountains, Mount Galatea, the water that that melts in this watershed trickles down across the continent. We need to be stewards of that. Stewards as an industry of the commodities that we produce, of environmental, social, regulatory performance. And we try to weave that into the brand and, and use that as a way to talk about what we do. Awesome. And, and is that is that uh, important in your hiring process too, that there's that value alignment of, of you know environmental concern? Yeah, you know, we provide an easy way for a person that works for a traditional commodity business to take a step into clean tech, into technology, into diversifying their skills. We think that's super important. When we think about outcomes for our clients, obviously reducing cost is a, is a huge one. In fact, the biggest one. But they're not mutually exclusive with environmental or social or regulatory performance as well. We like the people that are really willing to dig, double click on that and dig into it. When we think about what does the future of Galatea look like, we're creating the technology that will help enable these other clean tech environmental solutions like water recycling, like lithium extraction. We create that platform, that foundational layer that enables those companies to find profitability and viability too. So we're looking for those people to join our organization that believe in that mission because it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to be a 10-year journey. 
Working in this industry, I imagine you work with uh, clients from all over, is that correct? Correct. Yeah. How do you, do you change the way, or do you find it necessary to change the way that you speak to these different companies that may be based in different geographical locations, but also just like, uh, you know, do you have to change the narrative? Do you have to change the way that you speak to them? Is there different kind of business practices, that sort of thing? I think one of the things that has contributed a lot to our success is that at one point, everybody in the office here has been on the other side. Mm. Whether that's working in the field, smoking cigarettes with the truck driver, whether that's being in a trucking dispatch room, being in an operator downtown, we've lived that problem. We've earned the right to solve the problem. So when we walk into this use case or this workflow, we were you. We have been there before. When I go out to the field, I'm often wearing dirtier coveralls than the people that have been there too. You create that sympathy, that empathy, that, hey, I've, I've done this before. I've, I've lived your pain. I'm here to help solve your problem. Now, the narrative that we tell when we go out to the field, we don't even talk about costs because, like I said, the people in the field, they don't care. What they really care about is being able to get home for dinner, to have dinner with their family. We're going to save you time. We're going to make your life easier. You're getting this, this never-ending list of things to be done. We're going to take a couple of those off. We're going to make your life easier. Now, when we come back into head office, it's a totally different conversation, and it's really understanding that role, that company, what do they see the value in, what are the problems that they're looking to solve, what's keeping them up at night. How important are, uh, is personal value alignment for you uh, with you know, your companies? Tell me more. So, uh, you know, we talked about the, the environmental side of things, which is obviously important to you personally, but how do you translate your own values into your company? Yeah, so we have four core values at Galatea. Being hungry, which means being very entrepreneurial, somebody who's always thinking about what's next, how can I do more, not sitting there waiting for the task to land on their desk. The next one's humble. I want to work with a team where the wins are the team wins and there's not some rock star running around saying, hey, this is so great, I win. Uh, the next one's hip. So doing something that's never been done before, weaving in concepts of behavioral performance into antiquated field operations, we need to be the ones that are listening to the podcast, reading the books, figuring out what's next, helping educating our clients to say, hey, this is where the world is moving to. This is sort of how things are going to play out for you in the future. And hungry, hip, and helpful is the last one. You know, it's probably one of the hardest ones to learn, but it's this culture of giving without expecting anything back. There's this crazy video about giving the pickle, and it's this guy that ran this a franchise of restaurants, and he tells a story about how he received a letter one day from a lady who was really upset that she didn't get an extra pickle with her sandwich and the waitress tried to charge her. And the whole essence of it is just give her the pickle. Just go above and beyond. How do we weave that into our culture? Um, being helpful is priority one. Even if we were in this meeting and a client called me, I would get up and leave the meeting and solve that for the client. So really focused on being helpful, celebrating those sort of core values. Now that's the most important thing. That's what we hire and fire on. Skills, tasks, 
what people do during the day, what they come to the office with. You can train all those things. You can invest in people and solve those problems. Core values that you can't solve that. And that's, that's really what we hire. And we spend the most of time in our hiring process making sure they fit the level that we're on. And that's what we fire on to. When, when we have to let somebody go, it's always back to one of those core values. Yeah. I really love the hip one. I think that's so integral these days is, um, you know, ensuring that your team is kind of taking on the education side too. You, you know, I'm sure you're familiar. There's, if you learn something and that, that knowledge isn't further developed or you're not constantly evolving that knowledge, then it's, it's become stagnant. And that could be, you know, five years old knowledge. And that's irrelevant at this point, especially when you're in a small business that's looking to make waves, right? I'm curious, are there any specific tactics or maybe processes that you use to ensure or to at least encourage um, your, your team, your staff to, to constantly improve their, their knowledge and their skill sets? Yeah, it's, it's partially giving them the liberty to wander out and spend time thinking about what's going to help them. It's also telling a lot of stories about what we think the future of the business and the world looks like, sort of shaping that direction on the way we think transportation, logistics, commodity businesses, what does energy transition mean? It's having a bunch of books all around, sharing podcasts, sharing that wisdom. And then when we get together, we have a couple meetings every week. Part of the first part of the meeting is talking about what's happening, where do we see things going, any feedback from clients, have we listened to any really good podcasts. I think if you care about the people you work with, you naturally share opportunities for people to learn and you figure out what people are passionate about and and you create this feedback mechanism from everybody where they're giving to you and you're giving to them knowledge and opportunities to learn. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Where do you find fulfillment in, in the work that you do every day? I think that changes all the time. I think my optimization goal is having more good days than bad days and it's really that simple. Um, somebody that I, a mentor, somebody that I really appreciate always asks, like, if it's fun, I'll do it. If it's not fun, I'm out. And I think that's a cool philosophy to have where it always, you always need to be having a really good time doing what you do. Uh, personal fulfillment to me changes. I've had the opportunity to raise money, which is fun and insanely stressful at time. I've had the opportunity to create new products and double down do uh, geographic expansion, all these really fun opportunities to do things result in having you know, 100x more good days than bad days, for sure. So on those bad days, how do you, how do you motivate yourself to kind of you know, push through? Or Yeah, I love bad days. That's the thing that I think makes entrepreneurs different. I love critical feedback. I love it more than somebody tells me, hey, good job. I love it when people say, hey, Here's an opportunity for you to get better. Um, when you think about boiling water, right before it boils, it's the hardest part. Lots of people will take the water off the heat where I like to turn up the heat. In the bad days, the harder it gets, that's where you get these breakthroughs. That's where you get and you learn process and just create that mental fortitude to get through, to get out the other side. Because even at the worst times, you know, 
being an entrepreneur, you're doing something that a lot of people don't get the privilege or the opportunity to do. Learning how to get through those bad times, learning how to come out the other side. Um, it's what makes incredible entrepreneurs incredible. Yeah, I'm going to circle back in your story a little bit there. Um, you you explained how you know that you you came to a point where it was time to kind of quit your job and start something. What what was that? What was that nudge or the push that kind of put you over that edge? Well, I think it comes back to really de-risking the opportunity. When when we saying this out loud is absolutely crazy, but I had just bought a new house, had a new baby. My wife was on maternity leave. It was a terrible time to start a business, but I had learned so much about what was happening. I just had this insane conviction that nobody else was going to do it. I needed to do it. And having the confidence that no matter what, I would figure it out. And at the worst, at the end of the day, the worst case scenario, I could just go back and get another job. Um, having that mindset is really what enabled me to say, yeah, it's time, let's go. I'm unemployable, and I'm sure you hear that a lot from everybody. I, I would, am a terrible employee because I'm poking the box, I'm challenging everything, I'm asking lots of questions, I'm super curious. If somebody said, no, you can't do that, I'm absolutely going to do it or figure out why you can't. And I think that's just an entrepreneurial mindset. Uh, at some point you work for these companies and you get frustrated by the way they make decisions and how slow things move and you just say, hey, I can't do this anymore. I've got to try to figure it out. And then you go through this process where you control your own destiny and you control the pace, you control the momentum. And it's this crazy overwhelming feeling where you become unemployable, where you're like, I can't go back to that ever. This is what I am, this is what I need to do whether it's solving this problem or that, or building this business or that, you just become this sort of, I think it's what an entrepreneur is called. Yeah, do you think, do you think it's the curiosity and the, the problem solve, the drive to solve problems that defines an entrepreneur? It's absolutely curiosity. I think it's also this understanding that life is perpetual learning. Continue to learn, continue to learn. And then you need to reinvent yourself all of the time. Being an entrepreneur is this magic trick of reinvention, of who you are, of what you do. It's being willing to go into a conversation and be willing to walk away with a completely different perspective, mindset, strategy, you know, kind of living this fluid life where you're okay with change, where you're okay with risk, where you're okay with walking into the craziest situations and learning how to be calm and collected. I think that's what entrepreneurship's about. Would you say that you've changed, um, like fundamentally changed over time being an entrepreneur or that you've kind of reinforced who you are? I think it's more about reinforcing who I thought I was, but I am going through this wildly changing process of who I am all the time. And that's totally, I think that's, in fact, that's awesome. Everybody can change. And, you know, I grew up moving a lot. My family worked in, in energy and, you know, I've been to six different schools, lived in 11 different houses, and that gave me the ability to, to recreate who I was every time I moved, every time I got into a new situation. 
And you get to do that in entrepreneurship a lot. Every market we enter, every new product, every iteration of our company, every new problem that we unlock that we get to solve, you get to go through this sort of iterative process where you get to change. And having the mentality of wanting to be a better person, a better human, a better leader, a better CEO, a better community builder uh, is, is fantastic. And you get to steal the wisdom, borrow the wisdom of all of these crazy people and all of this really cool sort of, you know, minutia, all of this, this thing that happens and sculpt and create your own persona. Uh, it's it's fascinating. It's it's something that's a lot of fun. We've talked extensively about culture, but you use the word community there too, which I think is really interesting. And and I think that you know that goes so much beyond your internal team, but it, it extends to your clients and the people that you know follow your thought leadership or all these different things. Um, is 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 community important to you, and and how do you foster that? It's the most important thing, being in an ecosystem or a community where we're here to support each other. That concept of giving without expecting anything back. You know, we live in a community in Calgary where we go through, you know, our whole entire community was, was built around commodities, oil and gas. Now, oil and gas has this crazy cyclicality where it creates these times of wild prosperity and this time of crazy despair. And I think that's what's created resiliency. And that resiliency now is cascading out into the tech ecosystem. It's created this culture of people who are willing to help in tough times. Uh, it's created this culture of people who are willing to invest. All of this, this really cool opportunity. And then another thing that we don't talk about a lot in Calgary, downtown Calgary specifically, Every building is connected on the second level through this thing called the plus 15, which creates collisions. You walk around that plus 15 and you see a bunch of people that you know and you say, hey, how are you? What are you working on? What's new? What's exciting? You go for coffees all the time. That community is so much stronger in any other place that I've ever lived because, you know, we're being, because of our winters, we're being forced into this sort of arena where we all get together and have conversations. I think it's super fascinating and it's, it's a great way that just naturally creates an ecosystem of community. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's, it's a very common theme, you know, any lots of entrepreneurs I, I have the opportunity to chat with are, are very, very grateful for their Calgary, either upbringing or that they're based here. Um, I know you mentioned you left Alberta to do, you know, you're touring around for different jobs and then came back. Was that intentional? Did you always want to build here? Man, I love a good adventure and I'm always game to do something weird and go to a crazy place. Um, having the opportunity as a young age to leave home, I think is super transformational. Like I said, worked on the rigs when I was 17, went out there, a, a boy came back, a man. I went down to Denver for a couple of years, had to get a social security number, had no idea how to do any of that sort of stuff. I think the more you can get into uncomfortable situations, and a lot of that comes with changing where you live or what you do or taking, you know, outsized risk to bet on yourself, um, creates a person that's just willing to, to have more resiliency have more grit, more tenacity. Um, I owe a lot of that to moving around a lot. 
uh, sort of in my childhood, but then also in my formative years. I came back to Calgary because one, I think Calgary is the best city that I've ever lived in. We're so lucky to have the mountains close by, an active community, a generous community of people who are willing to give back. We live in such abundance. You turn on the light switch, the lights always work. You turn on the taps, the water always works. Uh, it's just a really amazing place to, to not only build a business, a community, but a family too. Yeah. What does success look like to you? Having more good days and bad days. It's really that simple and I don't care how it, you do it or what you do for work or where you wander. It's really figuring out what is a good day for me looking inside, saying, where am I at? Who am I? What am I doing? How am I feeling? And then the optimization goal is just having more good days and bad days. If you're having a lot of bad days, do the hard work to try to fix that and figure out what does a good day look like. Right on. What's, what's next? What's next for you? What's next for Galatia? Well, we've earned the right to have some more problems. We got our first multinational US client. So we're taking our business to Texas, sort of in Q1 this year, which is gonna be a blast. The market's bigger in the US, the opportunities to provide the same environmental regulatory outcomes that we've been having a lot in, in Alberta for generations, to be able to export those outcomes into the US market, I think is gonna be uh, incredibly impactful at a very pivotal time where there's lots of, of media and negative press around commodity businesses and energy. You know, commodity businesses, oil companies, we believe that we need a more sustainable uh, energy option. Yeah, we believe that more than anybody else. But we also understand energy security and we understand you know, reliability, and we understand all of these sorts of hard things. So it's going to be important for solutions to evolve in this clean tech energy space and be exported from jurisdictions like Alberta that have been leaders for decades into other jurisdictions like the U.S. So the future for Galatea looks like exporting to the U.S. and then really scaling the other facets of our business culture it's cool that we have a guidebook and it works really well at 20 people what does it look like at 40 people what does it look like at 100 200 people um, all of the sorts of things that go into building a business yeah awesome and uh you personally just at the helm anything different yeah i've got a young family too so really trying to make sure that the kids sort of impart and really understand what we do. My kids come down to the office with me a lot. I used to do the same thing with my family too, spending the weekends at the businesses that we ran. I think instilling that entrepreneurship or that opportunity to be an entrepreneur into the kids is super important. Um, letting the kids sort of wander in their curiosity with kids, you see it a lot in sports and music and dance and activities like that, but giving them the ability to spend time figuring out what they like, what they don't like. Working on my relationships too, relationships with family, friends, my wife, 
you know, we got this business coach at Galatea that really helped me work with the management team and create this culture of trust and all of these really cool things. It was so powerful, the communication that it brought to our team to be able to overcome some of these crazy things. I started to, to cascade that into my relationship with family and friends and, and my spouse. I think that's super important to, to really work on and, and double down on too. Yeah, you said obviously you came from a, an entrepreneurial family, but also your wife is similar. Do you find that helps with you know um, home life and and trying to balance, for lack of better terms, of you know understanding maybe when you ha you have to stay late or whatever the case may be. Yeah, when you're getting into a relationship, it's so important to have those hard conversations about. What does the relationship look like now? What does it look like in the future? What does it look like when the kids are growing up and leaving home, retirement? How do we have those conversations and understand what are the sacrifices? What are we going to need to do? Um, getting alignment on that and making sure that you're always communicating that is so important. And I, I don't see that happen a lot. And it's it it makes it allows me to do what I do and makes it easier for me to have the commitment, the grind, the tenacity to, to pick up the phone when a client calls and it's the middle of dinner to make sure the kids know that that's okay. And that's, that's sort of what we do as entrepreneurs. Awesome. Do you set any boundaries around your personal time to business or is it kind of just like take it when it needs to be done? Yeah, work-life balance is this crazy concept to me that never really made sense because I don't think there is balance. I think it's more about work-life harmony and I heard somebody talk about this recently and I said, yeah, that's sort of my jam. I've got the best job in the world and I love it. Like, I absolutely love my job. I, I don't think there's a, uh, there will ever be a balance to it. I'll never retire. Retire from what? I love this. This is... This is so much fun right now, but it's making sure that you're able to, to keep tabs on yourself, talk about health, mental health, all of these sorts of things that go into it, and always trying to find that harmony. There's times where I work like crazy for long periods of time. There's times where I like to go hiking for a week in the backcountry where there's no cell phone service too. So being able to find that harmony and, and ultimately comes back to having more good days and bad days. If you use that sort of as your guiding framework and principles, it'll tell you the direction you need to go and, and how hard you're able to push on the gas pedal. Right. Awesome. Is there anything you'd like to plug or mention before we wrap up here? No. Anything you think we missed? No, nah, man. That was awesome. Really appreciate your insights on hey. everything and, yeah, openness and stuff like that, too. Yeah, that was fun. Thank you. Thank you.